our fallenness, uh, we seek glory for ourselves. And what we find is when we humble ourselves intentionally before God and give Him the glory, we find that that's when we are most fully raised up and blessed. And so it's a good thing to be doing this morning. Hey, a friend of mine has a phrase that I find I repeat to myself fairly regularly. And he says, Mike, I'm an idiot. (laughs) I kid you not. It's a regular refrain. And I find myself saying the same thing. Jonathan, why is that? I I don't know. Uh, uh, two Two weeks ago, after a video introducing the Women's Winter Conference, I made a foolish, thoughtless remark. And I shouldn't have. And I felt like an idiot as soon as I did. I told my wife later, and uh, she brought it up just the other day. And I, no, I mean, uh, she said, no, Mike, don't feel bad, which was good. Uh, But I'm following up to abjectly apologize, not only to my wife, but to the women especially here, because I wouldn't want anything I said to keep you from coming to the Women's Winter Conference next month, okay? So it'll be great fellowship. The instruction will be great. It'll be a great time. So forgive me. Don't hold it against me, but don't hold it against the conference and the time. It'll be good. It'll be worth your while. Yes, ma'am. We forgive you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We had, we had, puts me in mind. The McElroys have never had a fight in their 20 plus years of marriage. The Lindsays have. (laughs) As they shared this in their welcome class stories, there was a Sunday, Kathy and I were, this is keeping it real, guys, by the way. Uh, There was a Sunday, Kathy and I were headed to church back at Caraparaville. We're fighting in the truck as we pull up to go to church, to be holy for Mike to teach. So I get up. I get up as service starts to teach, and I just said, hey, guys, just FYI, we just had a fight just coming up, right as we were coming up to church. We had a fight. That's the real, and I think we'd, we knew we had several guests there. I said, hey, I'm just keeping it real. My wife walks up just like that, kisses me, and says, we're all, we're all good. Okay, we're good. So we're good. Uh, but the conference will be great, ladies, so I hope you're able to join for that. And with that, let me pray. Confession over, let me pray, and we'll look at the message. Father, we do want to intentionally humble ourselves in your presence because we want to see you honored and glorified and lifted up. And Lord, we know when that happens, we are raised up in your presence. We are blessed. So help us humble ourselves before you and your word this morning. Help us to derive from our time what you want us to. Help us to see Christ more fully, to love him more dearly. And we just thank you that your perfect justice, your mercy and grace are all poured out in Christ. We want to know him better. In Jesus' name, amen. I've told many of you before that uh, Kathy and I, many of our dates before we got married were in cemeteries, which I didn't know was weird until Kathy's sister Barb pointed it out. Um, Cemeteries have never been scary or spooky for me. I, I feel at home in cemeteries, and it's in part because I feel like I'm among friends, which is to say you walk through a cemetery, you're looking at people's lives, people just like you that have gone before. You know, and you read the gravestones, and, and they were born, and they lived, and they died. Maybe there's an epitaph on there. But you know what? Every one of those gravestones is a reminder, indelibly, in stone, even faded over time, 
that God's words to Adam and Eve were true when he told them, if you eat the tree I forbid, you will die. And we've been dying ever since, haven't we? And you go through those cemeteries and you're reminded with every stone and every grave, sin brought death and we die. That's still going on today. And I do think it's, frankly, it's a pretty good practice to occasionally go through a cemetery and read the gravestones. You know, you'll read some. We live right around the corner from a little cemetery. Most people in Topeka don't even know it exists, but it is. And it was for former slaves and black Americans. That's who the cemetery is for. They're on 27th Street. Yep. Mm -hmm. There's almost no graves in there, but there's some old ones from the 1800s. So, you know, some of those, those gravestones you read and... The gravestone reflects the kind of life most of us would think we want to live, which is the person was born at this date, and they lived a long time, and then they died in old age, and maybe there's an epitaph that talks about a spouse or children, you know, and the thought is, here's a person that lived the kind of life I would like to. I lived a long time. I had kids. I got to see my grandkids. I'm thinking of the patriarchs in Genesis, and when I'm a ripe old age and my family's around me, I draw my feet up in bed and I die quietly, and I go into God's presence. And wouldn't that be grand? But you know, when I go through the cemetery my parents are buried in, here in West Topeka, I not only see my parents and my friends' parents, but guys, I see gravestones of people that I know were murdered because I was there running EMT calls when they were murdered. And there are gravestones there of families, tragic, tragic stories. I remember one time I walked over and there were like four or five of these, the same big stones. And it was a single family. And so I looked them up, went online, CJ online, looked them up and tragic story. So not only does the cemetery and all those gravestones in it remind us that sin brings death, but you're also aware that sometimes death comes early, that they don't live to a ripe old age. And it's not the kind of life you'd want for yourself or anyone else. Sometimes, too, this is what we find, you look through history, uh, sometimes it's God himself who brings about death prematurely. And sometimes death isn't just to an individual or to a group of family members, but sometimes death comes to whole groups of people at a time, and it does so, guys, in God's sovereign economy for his purposes in ways we probably can't figure out in the moment. But we know God's sovereign, and somehow this is all working together in a way that honors God. We are going to be talking about a, what for me, I think, and for most people, is a very difficult subject this morning. We're in the third lesson in Deuteronomy. And we are going to be talking about mercy. That's the subtitle. Mercy waiting is the subtitle of the series. But we're also going to be talking about judgment. Those two things, those corollaries go together, <clears throat> excuse me, not only throughout Scripture, but ultimately in Jesus' life and death. So what we're going to see this morning is both mercy and judgment. And this is the thing. If we don't recognize the rightness of God's judgment, you cannot recognize the value of God's mercy. And guys, I think most of us are understanding of the rightness of God's judgment is minimal. And the more fully we see the rightness of God's judgment, God's mercy in our minds, our appreciation just grows and grows and grows. And we live in a day of God's mercy and grace. But if we don't know what God's perfection in holy judgment would look like, 
we can't appreciate what he's doing for us in his mercy. We're going to be in the ESV again in Deuteronomy. I'll be reading from the ESV. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Deuteronomy 3. Because we've been in narratives, I've been reading large sections of text. We're not doing that this morning. We're reading maybe 10 verses total. Uh, Deuteronomy 3 is where we'll start, and then we'll go to Deuteronomy 7. And you remember the story uh, is set here that Moses has led Israel out of Egypt. They went to Sinai. They've got the covenant. The 40 years in the wilderness are over. They've defeated two kings on the east side of the Jordan River, and two and a half tribes have possessed those lands, and we'll actually reference that here in the first Scripture portion. And they're getting ready. The rest of the tribes are ready to cross Jordan and go over into the land of promise. That's where we're picking up here. So Deuteronomy 3, this is verses 3 through 7. Moses rehearses, So the Lord, or Yahweh our God, gave into our hand Og, remember King Og, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. We took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Verse 6, we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sion, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoils of the cities we took as our plunder. So every human being in that kingdom and in those cities that drew breath was slain by the Jews coming into the land A promise. Uh, Turn the pages. Deuteronomy 7, this is verses 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when Yahweh, the Lord your God, gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Guys, that thought and the language here, devoted to destruction, is phrased differently in different translations. Some say are under the ban. And what you're seeing here is the same thing you'll see with something like the city of Jericho and Joshua. It's that God is saying, everything there is mine, and you get to take nothing from it. In this case, humanity. They're under the ban. I have brought them under judgment, and every person there is mine. And in this case, they're mine for destruction, not for mercy. He says, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you, his people, quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, those are female idols, and burn their carved images with fire. So when you go into the land, you not only devote to destruction all the people in the land, but you devote all the stuff they use for their idolatry to destruction as well. So guys, 
uh, are you feeling happy from these passages? These, this is sobering, isn't it? And you know what you'll find? If you read commentaries and, and you look up people's thoughts on passages like this, what you'll find is these strike us, these passages about people being devoted to destruction strike us so fully today in a negative way that commentators do everything they can to say it doesn't mean what it says. And you've know, you got to be careful if you read a text that sounds clear and you say it cannot mean what it says. You've got to be careful because I think it means what it says. And I think this is exactly what God commanded and exactly what they did to the degree that they did fulfill it. It sounds harsh. It sounds brutal. God says to them, show them no mercy. And don't we want mercy? And don't we want to treat other people the way we would want to be treated? I mean, this cut absolutely cuts across the grain. Uh, chapter 3, verse 3, strike down, leave no survivor. Verse 6, devoted to destruction. Verse 2 in chapter 7, devote them to complete destruction. Show them no mercy. This is limited, I might point out here, uh, strictly to the land of promise. Um, this is not a group that's going to uh, try to get worldwide hegemony where they oversee, they destroy everybody in the world, but rather... This is strictly limited to the land of promise. We'll develop this a little bit in a minute. Uh, last week, we asked the question, is it okay for God to take away land and nation status from some to give it to others? And you know, if you read the Scripture and you say, well, God's the Creator, all things serve His purposes, you have to conclude, well, yes, it is okay. He's God. And he's never unjust. And that'll come up today too. Today we're asking the question, is it okay for God to kill people? Is it okay for God to kill people? Is it okay for God to end the lives of anyone prematurely before they would otherwise naturally die? And if it is, is it okay for God to use some people to judge other people in death because that's God's will, is that okay? Because that's what's commanded here. So in the context of Deuteronomy, we're, we're contrasting, we're looking at both elements of God's mercy and God's judgment. And you see them both in spades in this book of the Bible. The only biblical conclusion on both of these we can draw is yes, it is okay. And we'll develop this. The, the trouble that I think, when you talk about judgment and no mercy and God's judgment and passages like this, this is one of the reasons, by the way, passages that call for the destruction, the absolute destruction under the ban of people groups in the Bible lead some people to say the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the God of the New Testament. Have you ever heard that? They're different gods. And it's like, well, actually, if you read Old and New Testament, you see no, that it's the same God, and he's always expressing himself in, in all of his perfections. It's not all one or all the other. But people have trouble with these passages, and they strike us today particularly against the grain. The trouble we tend to have with God bringing about death and judgment is that we start with a false premise. That our understanding is false, and therefore we end up with false conclusions. So if we can get the premise right, the foundational element that we're talking about in God's mercy and judgment right, then we can end up with right conclusions. 
But I think most of us are starting with a false premise. And this is the false premise. We tend to assume that we are good. That we deserve God's goodwill and blessing or at least the benefit of the doubt. But we are not, in fact, good as God counts goodness. And what we deserve is God's judgment. We do not deserve God's grace or mercy. Every human being that's ever lived the earth, save Jesus, is not good in God's sight and deserves God's judgment. Absolutely. If we don't start there, we have no context for God's mercy. It doesn't exist. If we don't understand, we are rightly under God's just judgment against us for sin. If we don't start there, we can't get anything else right. If we do, and this is, the, this is the, for me, absolutely humbling element of these concepts, if we understand that we deserve God's justice, His judgment, and we get His mercy instead, guys, your appreciation for God just goes through the roof. Because suddenly you realize, if not for God in Christ saving me, I would get nothing but God's holy, righteous wrath and judgment. And just because God's good and gracious, I get eternal life instead, which I didn't deserve and I didn't pay for. And if we get God's justice right, God's mercy just enlarges our heart for God Himself and for God in Christ in ways it cannot otherwise. If you don't know what you've been saved from, you don't have that sense of, Thank you, thank you, thank you. So we want to get God's justice right so we can appreciate His mercy. You remember going back to Genesis 1 through 3, and this is just gospel. Genesis 1 through 3, God creates the heavens and the earth, everything in it, and everything you remember at the end of chapter 2, it's all very good. It's all very good. And Adam and Eve, one brief uh, mention of this in chapter 2, they walk with God. They are made for fellowship with God. They're His image bearers. They can walk with Him. There's nothing that holds them back. Life is good. They're in the perfect garden, and they walk and talk with God. That's life. Fellowship with God is life. But of course, in short order, they choose to believe Satan, the liar, instead of God. They do what God said, don't do. They sin, and they die. And you remember that then when the text says God comes and he calls them, what are they doing? Well, they're running and hiding. And why is that? Well, because now they know God's holy and I'm not. I'm broken. I am not what I should be and I feel it. They feel it the way we should when we sin. That's wrong. That keeps me from seeing God as he is. It prevents me from just having this face-to-face, heart-to-heart fellowship with God. They felt it. They died spiritually in the moment. Of course, hundreds of years later, they died physically as well. Sin brought death. So there's no death in the world until Adam and Eve. And guys, Adam is your dad. Your lineage goes right back to him. This is, we're all his children, right? That's our mother. That's our father. Ultimately, trace it all the way back. They sinned and they died and they brought death into the world in a way that did not exist before and could not apart from their sin. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, and Paul's not letting Eve off the hook, but he's just saying Adam was the head of the human race. You remember God creates Adam first. Adam's what we call the federal head of humanity. 
And so Paul says, sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Some people think it's unfair to say that I sinned when it was really Adam that sinned. But there's, two, there's at least two, and there's probably three points along this line. If you trace your lineage to Adam, so biologically, in unbroken succession, who and what you are goes back to Noah, and then it goes back to Adam. Where were you when Adam sinned? Now just humor me. You were in Adam because you come from Adam. This, this whole theme is brought up in Hebrews later about the Levitical priesthood versus Melchizedek. Well, you were in Adam when he sinned. And by the way, guys, this, this representational identity is important because if you can be held guilty for Adam's sin because you were in Adam when he died, what's the flip side of that? God can count us righteous in Christ when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. We are identified with our head whether we want to recognize it or not. You were in Adam when he sinned. You sinned. In the justification realm, we were in Christ as believers when he died and when he rose. So this identification is important. But the other thing is this. Adam reproduces people just like him. And what does that mean? That means a sinner reproduces sinners. And every one of Adam's children, when they're born and they're raised and they grow up, can they have face-to-face fellowship, un- unhindered fellowship with God? They can't because he's holy and they're not. So this thing goes on. Sin came through Adam. We've all sinned. We're all, we're all experiencing elements of sin and death. Now, that's bad enough. God says, if you sin, you'll die. They sinned, they died. We're, we're still dying today. On top of that, not only is death the natural fruit of sin, but sin brings about God's wrath. And this is where we get into the judgment. His anger, because sin is opposed to all that God is, and all that God loves. Sin is an assault against God in His holiness and His perfection. This is from Romans 2, verse 5. Paul says, and and by the way, this echoes language from Romans 1. He says, and this he says, guys, not to pagans who know nothing about God. This he says to religious Jews. Maybe like people who come to church on Sunday. He says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And wrath, we say wrath in English, it comes from the Greek orge, and the thought is this overflowing righteous indignation and anger God has for sin. It's opposed to God. It's opposed to His perfections. It's it's not anything He can embrace in us or at all. It, It not only brings death to us, but it brings God's anger His judgment, it has to, can't be any other way. God's judgment in death generally, or when he intentionally shortens life by bringing about death, is never ultimately against innocent parties. This is where we need to start. God's judgment 
in death or in any other way is never against an innocent person. It cannot be because there's none righteous on the earth. How many? No, not one. Romans 3. God is never judging. His anger is never being expressed against innocent parties, but against sinners who are opposed to God in one or numerous ways. You've got this in Romans 5, verse 12. As Adam's descendants were like him, sinners deserving judgment. And then the Romans 3, 10 and 11 sums up Romans 1, 2, and half of chapter 3, which is to say we all are in the same boat. We all have the same problem. We're all sinners. And what we deserve from God, if we get what we deserve, if all he does is justice, we get judgment. We get death. We don't get mercy. Sin always brings death. And sin must be judged because God is holy and we are not. Now, if we don't start with that fact that we deserve God's judgment, we get everything else wrong. We get passages like Deuteronomy wrong. If we don't start with the fact that we deserve God's judgment, God's mercy is not seen as the grace gift that it truly is, but as something that God owes us. And what God, all he owes us is judgment. We cannot get mercy and grace right if we don't start there. Like Adam and Eve, our first parents, we all sin. And guys, when we sin, we experience elements of death. So if I abuse sex or alcohol or food or anything else, my body pays a price. My emotions pay a price. My spirit pays a price because I'm experiencing the fruit of sin. It always brings some element of death. Sometimes, like the Amorites and the Canaanites in the land of promise, people are judged in their lifetimes by God such that their lives are cut short. If you read in Acts 12, it says that Herod, the king, specifically is struck down by God. His life is ended in judgment prematurely. So not only do I experience elements of death for my sin, but sometimes God directly brings in judgment. And we don't know when he's going to do this, of course, but occasionally he does. We know this from Scripture. Ultimately, we all face God's perfect judgment for sin either, either by personally bearing God's judgment forever or because God's judgment is perfectly met in Christ, we don't experience it. Christ has experienced it for us. That's where, we'll, of course, we'll end this morning. Anything short of God's immediate judgment on sin is mercy and grace. Anything short of judgment is mercy and grace. Anything short of judgment, any moment short of judgment is mercy and grace. This is from Matthew 5.45. This is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's mercy. So Jesus says, I want you to be like my Father. What's my Father like? Well, he's merciful. Well, what does his mercy look like? Well, he sends rain on the unjust. He gives sunshine to the unjust. He blesses the unjust and he calls it mercy, not what they are owed, not what their due is from God. He says that's mercy. If you go to Acts 14, verse 17, Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Lystra and Paul says in part this, God did not leave himself without witness you know, worshiping idols versus the living and true God. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, 
satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul tells the pagans, that's how God has left you his witness. Every good thing you've experienced. And you just think, guys, breath is a, is a privilege. To, to be born and to, to, to draw breath is mercy. And then think of the ways, and especially in our day and age, you know, lifespan is in the States, it's in the 70s. This is not the historical norm. Because we've got so many things. We've got good food. We've got warm houses. We've got cooled houses. You can watch the sun rise. You can watch it set. We pray for the rains. Bring the rains at the right time. Southwest is getting hammered right now by rain, and they're thrilled because they've been in a drought. Well, Jesus and Paul both affirm all these things are evidence of not only of God, but of God's grace and of his mercy. The people God had Israel destroy as they took possession of the land of promise had also enjoyed God's mercy and grace. Every breath they took, every season they experienced and enjoyed, every meal they sat down and enjoyed with their family, all of that was God's mercy and grace to the Canaanites, to the Amorites. This is the other thing, though, specific to this, these people groups at this time. God had given them also time not only to enjoy common grace on the earth, but also time to repent, and they hadn't. Now, these people groups were mentioned already back in Genesis 15, 16, when God made his covenant with Abraham. And he's promised Abraham, I'm going to give you lots of kids, and I'm going to give you this land, Euphrates to Egypt, the Great Rift Valley, Jordan to the Mediterranean. But you're not going to get it now, he says. It's going to be 400 years before your children get the land I'm promising you. And listen to what he said. Your children shall come back here in the fourth generation. Now, why the delay? Why 400 years for Israel, for Abraham's descendants in another land, before they get the land God was promising to Abraham and his children? He says, for this reason, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Hebrew term, therefore, complete, comes from the same word group as shalom. Now, if you say shalom to someone, you're saying you're, you're blessing them with, with health, wealth, wholeness, life sort of as God intended it to be. And the thought here is this, the sins of these people groups have not fully blossomed as they will. You know, if you plant a flower in the ground and the, and the flower springs up, you see it early, you know what it's going to become because it's a certain flower, but it hasn't fully bloomed. Give it enough time, put the water on it, and it grows up and then it fully blooms and that flower is everything it was meant to be. Well, here God says in 400 years, these people groups, their evil, their refusal to repent and submit to me is going to be full blown. It's like the flower is fully bloomed and it is time for my judgment to come on them. Not now, but later. So understand that for 400 years, God could have judged them and he didn't. That was mercy. They already deserved God's judgment. But God is going to let it ripen to its full bloom before he says, okay, the day of mercy is over and the day of judgment has come. And that's true for all the peoples of the land of promise. The same thing. Mercy is over. That's a, that's a frightening phrase, isn't it? There was divine justice in the judgment that was at work in this. And I'll read from Deuteronomy 12 here in just a moment. 
But guys, when we think, remember there's, God never judges anyone that's innocent. It doesn't, that doesn't exist. God's judgment is always true and right. So anyone that God judges, it, the judgment God gives is perfect. What were the people groups like that God was either pushing out of the land of promise or removing in judgment and death? What were they like? Well, God tells us. This is Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 31. Take care that you don't be ensnared to follow them, the practices of the Amorites in the land, after they've been destroyed before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, their idols, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable, that's a big word, disgusting, Every abominable, disgusting thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and, and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So back in the day, the people groups that God was going to judge through the Jews, they weren't innocent in any ultimate way to start with but friends they weren't innocent in any way that you and I would say was innocent today by our distorted values they weren't innocent by that I'll just mention this briefly you know there's there's demons first Corinthians 10 tells us statues and idol worship it's not vain there's demons behind idols, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. There's demonic energy and power. And guys, these statues, you know, they would take a statue, they'd put a fire in it, it would get molten hot, then they would put their children on it to offer to their God. Hard to believe that this was common, this was going on. And I just say this, we talked about this in home group last week. Guys, the sin of abortion around this country and the world, it's not just us, by the way. We were talking about this. Guys, it would be hundreds of millions of children have been slain. Not necessarily on a fiery altar like these people were doing, but the blood of hundreds of millions of children has been spelled in abortion across the world. What must God think of that? The Amorites were going to be cut off. And what then the specifically the sin God mentions was killing their own children as an offering for a better way of life. And isn't that what abortion is? God warns Israel that when they take on the sins of the nations they possess, they will find themselves under God's judgment also. So God says, if you guys end up doing the same things the Amorites do that I'm judging, I will judge you too. I'll judge you in the same way. So this is Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 18. I'm summarizing God requires Israel to slay the Jews in their midst that were trying to lead other people into idolatry. God said you must put them to death. Jews, relatives, brothers and sisters of the covenant who are leading others into idolatry, you're to slay them. In Jeremiah 20, repeated, and these are on your study sheet, God uses Babylon to judge Judah. Now understand, this is a foreign army coming in with swords and spears and arrows, slaying Jews. And God says, that is from me. And what God did to Judah is what the Jews were doing to the people of the land when God said, we're starting over. We'll talk about that here in just a second. 
We need to be careful that we don't take God's mercy and kindness for granted, understanding that we deserve God's judgment. Listen to this from Romans 2. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And th- th- This is true for everyone, always. God's mercy is His kindness and it gives us time to repent and get right with God. Uh, Go back to Genesis 6, or at least the concept of Genesis 6, because I want to shift gears here just a little bit to talk about judgment from a different vantage point. So we understand no one that God judges is innocent. That's an impossibility. And for God's own sovereign purposes that we're not always fully aware of in the moment, a day of mercy will end and God's judgment will come because God knows this is the time in which this should occur, just as it was going to happen for the Amorites. Think of the the flood. This always strikes me as a little odd. You know, you go into nurseries and you see pictures of Noah's Ark with the giraffes, you know, the cute pictures coming out the window. And you go, that is so weird. Sorry. If it's at your home, I'm sorry. But what, what are we? Oh, wow. That's when God flooded the entire earth. When God, by flood waters, killed in judgment every man, woman, boy, and girl on the earth in judgment. Why did he do that in Genesis 6? There's two reasons. Here's the first. This is Genesis 6 verses 5 and 8 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen to this phrase. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil intentionally. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. I am sorry that I have made them. I'm not sorry because I didn't know what I was getting into. God is the most emotional being in the universe. We have emotions because God has emotions. And God sees the sin of the moment, and it is grievous, evil continually. So what does he do? He wipes them out. In the days of mercy before the flood, those on the earth had merely grown in their corruption. And remember, Genesis 6 is really early. In human history, Genesis 6 is really early. And by the way, guys, that's why when you get to Genesis 10 and 11, God has told them to spread out over the earth. And you know, there's a couple reasons for this. Now, in Genesis, in the creation account, hey, I want you to subdue the earth, you know, this whole thing. Make it all like the garden, like a paradise. That's one thing. The other thing is this. If you have a rotten apple, what do you do? You separate it from the good apples, don't you? Mankind spreading over the earth would have lengthened the duration by which their corruption would grow. And the more fully mankind was in one place with one language, their corruption, Genesis 6 is the evidence of this, it just expedites itself. So God's saying, I'm going to scatter people around the earth. I'm going to give them languages they didn't have before. This was God's mercy because it slowed the ability of mankind to be corrupted more fully in our sin. But what's happening in our world today? This is Daniel 12 also, by the way. So travel increases and knowledge increases. And what can, you know, on my phone, I'll bet yours is the same way. I can speak in English and it'll tell you Spanish. 
we're reversing, we're reversing Babel, and we can communicate with each other across the globe. And guys, what's, what's the fruit of it? We're corrupting more and more fully, which is what God said would happen. But this was God's mercy. So God uses the floodwaters, and what does he do? By doing that, he starts over. He cleanses the earth in the flood. He stops this crazy, rapid progression of sin and death, and he starts over with Noah and Noah's family. He cleanses, and then he starts over. And that's the pattern you'll see through Scripture. That's another reason for not only the fact that God does this, but the timing of God's judgment. When God brought Israel into the land of promise, he used Israel instead of floodwaters to cleanse the land of promise so that Israel, Isaiah says, it was like, Israel was like a plant that God planted in this perfect setting for them, the land of promise. It said, I'm going to clear all the weeds out and I'm going to put a plant in so it has the best opportunity to grow. In Matthew 25, after Jesus' glorious return in Matthew 24, before or as he institutes his millennial kingdom on earth, what does he do? He separates the sheep from the goats. And he says to some, you're not coming in. I'm consigning you to judgment. And the others get to come into his thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth. He cleanses before he starts his millennial kingdom. And what does he do later in Revelation 21? When this current earth age is over, Jesus judges all the unrighteous. He consigns each to hell with a degree of punishment perfectly suited to their lives on earth before he institutes the new heaven and the new earth. He cleanses before he starts over. This is from Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, New Jerusalem. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. The tears and the sin and the death of the past are over. I'm starting all over. It's all new and everything is cleansed. He says, verse 8, But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God says, basically, I've made an eternal separation. The new Jerusalem, my new heavens and my new earth will be everything I mean them to be and nothing that they shouldn't because he will have cleansed before he starts the new heavens and the new earth over. The flood of Noah's day, the Jewish armies, Jesus' own judgments at his return, and then later in heaven, are all God cleansing in judgment before he's starting his new work. And in each case, the day of mercy ends as God brings about his righteous judgment. Now, if you ask why, uh, talking about anything like judgment is uh, it's a burden, frankly. It's, um, uh, I was in a study this week and uh, also listening to some scripture. There's a couple different places where God tells one of the prophets, uh, I want you to eat this scroll. And when you eat it, he says, it'll be in your mouth as sweet as honey. It'll be so good. And if you've read scripture and, you know, God gives you insights and you take that in, you say, oh, that is so good. It's sweet as honey. But then in one instance in Revelation, he says, but in your belly, it will be bitter. And that's what this is like. The truth of God is sweet, but when you're talking about things like judgment, you swallow hard and it's like, I tell the Lord, even I do not get excited about these messages, although it ultimately reveals God's glory, it's still hard to talk about. 
So if someone says, and, and this is common, right? Uh, things like this. Uh, a God of love and mercy would never judge anyone or certainly not send them to hell. And why would God? So in the beginning, God's all there is, right? He's the only God. He's not only omniscient and omnipotent, but he's eternal and nothing and no one else is eternal. So on one hand, we can say, God, we blame you for sin and death because it, it all came from you, right? Or maybe not. But the universe, God, you could have created the universe differently. So why didn't you? And you know everything before it happens. So why, why this? Why death? Why judgment? Why the necessity of any of that? Why this? I don't say this is the only answer, but I do say this is one of the key answers that God gives. This is from Romans 9. Now, I would tell you that I think it's very hard on our humanity not only to agree with God that all of us deserve His judgment, not His mercy and grace. That's a hard pill to swallow. It's difficult for us. It requires some adjustment of our emotions and our preconceived concepts and ideas. But so does this. So does this. Romans 9, 22 through 24. And Paul, this is, this is part of three chapters of theology where Paul's addressing, am I saved forever? And if I am, Lord, what about the Jews? And how does all this work together? In that discussion, in that context, Paul writes this. And listen to what God wants to show, because that's what this is about. What if God desiring to show his wrath? What does God want to show? He wants to show his anger against sin. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? What does God want to make known? His power has endured with much patience. This is mercy. Has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God's patiently, mercifully endured vessels of wrath. Verse 23, in order to make known, what's he want to show? The riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God says this, God displays his glory and perfection in both judgment and mercy. He intentionally withholds wrath so he can continue to display mercy. Guys, at some point, this is part of the answer. God, why this world? Why this way? God, why sin and why the necessity of judgment? Because God says, and, and this is so key and critical. Guys, God can never do wrong. When we accuse God, we've got something wrong. God can't do wrong. Everything God does by the necessity of his character, of his very identity, is always perfect. So whatever God does, he says he's putting on display some element of his perfection. And here he says God wants to display his anger against sin. God wants to display that. He wants to display his power and he wants to display his mercy and kindness on vessels of mercy. God means to display his perfections. And that's why the world is as it is. That's one of the big pieces of that answer puzzle anyway. 2 Peter 3.9 says the same thing. Essentially, 
People say, well, God said he'd return. Jesus said he'd return, but he hasn't. It's been a long time. It says, God's not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, the second coming, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's going on today? Guys, we live in the day of God's mercy and grace, in which God's calling people to what? To repent, believe, and be saved. Because of that, it's really uh, the, the warning of Romans, uh, don't think lightly of God's kindness in mercy. That comes up in Hebrews. And guys, this is instructive. Three times in two chapters in Hebrews 3 and 4, Psalm 95 is quoted. And what does it say? If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You don't know when the day of mercy ends and the time of judgment comes. And so God says, Paul says, the writer of the Hebrews says, they all say the same thing. When you hear the gospel, repent and believe and trust Jesus. Agree with God. I'm a sinner. I deserve your judgment. And Jesus has taken your wrath and I want Jesus. I want Jesus to save me. That, that is the plea of the gospel. Don't overlook the fact that every day is a day of mercy and don't assume that you've got another day to take God's mercy for granted. But instead, when we hear God's voice and is called to repent and get right with him, we want to take advantage of that. We've heard the gospel. We've already heard God's mercy and grace. Now, I want to bring this out. People will often accuse God. If you talk about the language of judgment, anything along these lines, people will somehow want to point out that God is unfair. And guys, when this comes up in your conversations or when it comes up in your own mind, as it almost certainly will, uh, we always need to remember that God the Son became one of us and died on the cross for our sins. Th that is the great equalizer of every one of these discussions. Because if Jesus took on himself, and he did, he took on himself the perfect wrath of the Father for your sins and my sins, then you can never accuse God or Jesus of being less than fair because he took on himself what you and I deserved. Jesus on the cross, and it's a beautiful picture, when he's slain and the blood flows, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God so that the mercy of God can flow. He absorbs the judgment so God can give us mercy and grace. We can never accuse God of not being just. He's overabundantly just so he can be merciful and gracious. Jesus' death is the ultimate declaration of God's necessity in judging sin. If the Father must judge Jesus to save any of us, if Jesus must die for us to be saved, why do we think God would let anyone pass for the judgment due their sins. If God would punish Jesus to save us, why would we think he wouldn't be willing to punish someone else who rejects Christ's payment for them? It's an insult to the Father and the Son. Yeah, there's some comment, or excuse me, on uh, there's streaming videos on the gospel that are uh, out this year and last year that talk about the gospel uh, and uh, scriptures. And the one on the gospel has people that are professing Christians saying the gospel as it's presented in the scriptures 
is a child abuse, that the notion of Jesus, the Son, absorbing the wrath of the Father is child abuse, cosmic child abuse. And we say, no, it's the only way the Father could give us mercy and grace. If he's willing to judge Jesus to save any, friends, he's willing to judge any. Jesus' death is the ultimate declaration of God's commitment to show his mercy if he didn't spare his own son, Romans 5, 8. And also Romans 8, he won't withhold any other good thing for, from you. This is getting ahead, but in Deuteronomy also, this is what you see. You see a command in Deuteronomy 21, and then you see this fulfilled in the book of Joshua. When the Jews went in and they conquered a city, cities were usually independent city-states then. When they conquered the city, they brought out the slain king. This is what they were to do, and you tell me if this sounds familiar. They bring out the, the cities under the ban. It's under destruction. It's entirely for God. They bring out the slain king of the city. And what do they do with him? They hang him on a tree outside the city. And it indicates that the king and everything he oversaw was under God's judgment. And what does Jesus do? You take the king and he's hung on a tree outside the city and in both cases, the body had to be taken down before the end of the day. And Jesus shows that the world and everyone in it is under the ban, is under God's judgment. And there's only one way to experience God's mercy and grace eternally, and that's in Christ. Galatians talks about this, cursed is he who's hung on a tree. And Jesus was cursed for you and me so that we could be saved forever. And you have the perfect meeting of God's judgment in Jesus absorbing the wrath of God. And you've got the perfect display of God's mercy. This is what God did so you and I could receive God's mercy and grace. The wonder of wonders, friends, is not that God judges sin. It's that he gives us mercy and grace. That's the wonder. In Christ, the enjoyment of God's mercy and grace and his holy perfections is going to be enjoyed forever by the redeemed. And the perfection of God's judgment on sin will be seen not only in the backward glance we have in eternity. Remember, Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the earth, who bears in his body the marks of his crucifixion, but also the eternal judgment of God on vessels of wrath is the perfection of God's statement of his own character of judgment. God's judgment and God's mercy, guys, this is the, the beginning and the end of anything that, that matters in life on earth. If we get this at all, we deserve God's judgment. And we get God's mercy because Jesus absorbed the judgment and now flowing out of him comes God's mercy. Face down on my face, worship, thank you, humbled worshiping. Thank you, Lord. We've got eternity to say thank you, guys, for things we could never, ever deserve, could never have paid for. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll stand and read from Revelation 21 together. Uh, Father, your, your justice is to the heavens, through the clouds. The perfection, Lord, of your mercy is like rain on the earth. Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you Declare your goodness, Lord, your perfection in judgment and in mercy. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking the wrath to our sin and giving us God's grace instead. And Father, we ask you to help us to glorify you every day with every breath. Lord Jesus, may our lives be a testament to you and your perfection, your love, your grace, and your mercy. 
Amen. Stand and we'll read. This is Revelation 21, 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but 